0: to In Science, where we get to hear the -the behind-the-scenes stories of how scientific discoveries are made. My name is James O'Hanlon, and this week I am joined by an astrophysicist, a science educator, and... Am I right in understanding that you're now the president of the Australasian Planetarium Society? That is correct. I've done your research. <laughs> yes, Excellent. Yes, I have. I'm joined by Shane Hanks. Shane, thank you very much for coming on. Ah, oh, it's an absolute pleasure, James. And Mr. President, can I call you Shane? Yeah, Shane. I prefer Shane. <laughs> this might be a stupid question, but what makes a planetarium? What makes a planetarium? Yeah, what, by definition, what's a planetarium? Well, it's kind
1: of, to my understanding, it's like an old term used to basically view stars and planets. Because yeah. that's all they could do in this kind of environment. So I should describe the setup. It's basically uh, a dome that you walk inside and you yeah. sit down and then there's this fancy projection system that was typically in the middle. Looked like something out of War of the Worlds, perhaps. Like this sort of spangly kind of object and it sort of projected just points of light on the sky yeah and that's all it was and it sort of wow, people but the technology didn't really improve for a substantial amount of decades until yeah. the sort of the digital revolution took over and so that whole analog projection system is used to be called opto, opto-mechanical projection mm-hmm. is now just purely uh, replaced with digital projection so just projectors that you might have in your home theater or oh, right. even at the cinema now but there's usually multiple projectors
0: um, set up around the outside and it just projects up on the inside of the dome so this mechanical projector was a flat sheet with holes popped in it and a light underneath is that it, what you it mean was probably
1: a little bit, well i do not i'm not too sure about the first one yeah it's, it's an interesting history there i'll probably like to look back on it but i've seen some old well, probably 70s style projection systems. Yeah. And it looks like there's got proper lenses and everything right. like that. That They can actually feed in sort of a slide of a galaxy or a slide or various stuff. So it yeah. got very sophisticated, but they couldn't actually do proper animation or video projection of sorts. They probably could do video on a standard projector and they probably pop it up to the side or one of the side. Well, If you call it a side of a um, planetary because it's basically circular mm-hmm. and they could do a bit of that. But once the digital projection system, which is now standard, you can get now, I think the standard has become slow, uh slow, fastly becoming 8K projection, which is quite high quality. That yeah. you get. But I think the, sta- um, the common thing that in most digital um, plan is 4K, but it's always improving over time. Yeah. And so you, you can get very good high quality productions uh on a limited budget sort of thing like not if you compare it to a movie budget it pales and compared (laughs) to that but in some productions it can actually get that expensive depending on how much uh, resources you want to be pumping into it
0: i didn't know there were that many planetariums in australia no well each major capital city
1: has a planetarium even sydney has a fixed dome planetarium but it's not that big uh uh (laughs) It's a little modest size uh, at Sydney Observatory, actually. Mm -hmm. They converted one of the domes out to be a digital uh, projection of a planetarium. All right. Uh, So each capital city, but we need a big one. Uh, There was a lot of controversy in the past or competition to see whether we should get a planetarium or not in Sydney. Mm -hmm. And there's always been a long standing argument, especially, uh, (laughs) well, should we have one or should we not? And. One of the um, interesting there's an interesting story. We ended up with an IMAX cinema instead. Wow! Uh, yeah, That's scandalous. So, yeah, <laughs> so <laughs> I, they were looking at it from a sort of a profit point of view, yeah. which one was going to be more successful. And so I think, I guess from a one point of view that with an IMAX you can actually show sort of the the everyday movies that you mm. get released in the cinema. Because with a, a planetarium viewing, you've basically got a fisheye lens mm. view of the world. And it's very
0: hard to actually probably produce a movie in that kind of format. But uh, I mean, they're probably pretty important. You know, we have museums for art and history and science. And the planetarium is essentially filling that role, but for space exploration and... Well... The beauty of the digital
1: projection system now, you don't have to be forced to be doing astronomy anymore. Mm. You can do any kind of production, anything from underwater sea adventure mm. to space, essentially. But one of the things I like to see what's happening with Planterum is
0: actually see more variety of presentation. From. Yeah. Well, well, now that we've got these 360 cameras and virtual reality setups. Exactly. That's so, going to be a boost.
1: Yeah. So I think there's going to be, you're going to be seeing a lot of new technology coming onto the scenes. So like old sort of phrases like VR, virtual reality mm. actually coming, having a second comeback now because the technology and the equipment has actually caught up. In a sense, because back in the day, I remember twenty years ago trying a VR game and getting a headache and just sort of <laughs> leaning over my side, and I'm going, "Where am I going here?" And yeah, it wasn't yeah. realistic, and you weren't fully immersed. And so they, it was a, it went dead very mm. quickly. And now I think it's having a, uh, a
0: resurgence in terms of popularity because the technology is mm. now there. We have the capability. Well, my really my only experience of the planetarium is in this inflatable planetarium. <laughs> Ah, yes. <laughs> now, this is the whole
1: reason why I'm the, basically the president of the APS yeah. now, the Australasian Planetarium Society. And so you've experienced this, our portable planetarium. Yes. But lots of organi- uh, little small organizations actually have these portables, even Macquarie University here. Mm-hmm. Uh, my first experience with a portable was actually here at Macquarie Uni. Right. And I did a little bit of training and I sort of took that training with me to the University of New South Wales. Mm-hmm. And, and we had an old star lab. Yeah. that we dusted off like when i arrived it was somewhat being used but not much and then when i um, helped establish the astronomy outreach program that was going to be our biggest asset so yeah mm. so an inflatable dome that's portable yeah. that we can take to school schools across the state and that was the
0: whole idea is trying to work, raise the awareness of science mm. and it's a great little thing so, it is it's essentially like a I don't want to say jumping castle. But it- <laughs> no, that's the wrong term. <laughs> Although we've had kids try to jump on it yeah. and just go. <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: so, yeah, so it's basically an inflatable igloo. Yeah. Uh, so, you use just a, uh, basically a fan to inflate it up. So, it's a bubble of air yeah. that's contained within this mesh. And so, with the old system, you crawl through a tunnel mm-hmm. and then you sit down and look up, and there's a projection system um, there mm-hmm. showing the stars. Somewhat the planets with the old system, but you can pretty much put a variety of projection because the old system is just a cylinder drum with Mm. kind of pinholes in it and it sort of projected light through the holes on the inside of the dome. So it was very effective talking about uh, the night sky Mm. and then you can just tell stories rather than going to sort of, uh, well, we didn't have much sort of images to show, but seeing the stars up there is pretty cool. But then we had another projection system that showed the constellations, which Mm. was pretty cool. And that was like, oh, wow. And then we can talk about constellations and people's belief systems and everything like that and get them thinking. It's like, okay, what we're actually seeing, the pictures that we see in the sky is actually in our heads rather than reality because Mm. they're
0: just uh, stars in the distant galaxy, essentially. That brings up an interesting topic because you do lots of outreach and particularly... Astronomy communication. How often do you have astrology nuts trying to start out conversations with you? Well, I wouldn't call them that because I'm I don't have to deal with it. Oh right, <laughs> uh,
1: not as much as you think. Because yeah. Australia is they un, Australians actually understand that astrology. Well, there's a small population that sort of want to believe in it and the numbers and numerology and everything like mm-hmm. that. That's all fine, but it's very it's a very small group here okay. in Australia. So. Some people will say, oh, what's your consolation? Oh, there's my consolation. But mm. I think, on the whole, Australians are aware that, yeah, it's just for entertainment's sake. The mm. horoscope and everything like that. might give them a go, oh, okay, I feel good today because fortune's coming my way. But yeah. I think if you really press people in Australia, they go, yeah, it's not really what's going on.
0: So what star sign are you in?
1: Oh, everyone, oh that's a very good question. <laughs> um, because... If I look at my the time of my birth, right, and I look up my horoscope, I'm classified as a Capricorn. But the astronomer in me can actually work out what my actual star sign is, because it depends on how you define your star sign. So to my understanding, how you define your star sign is that the sun is in a particular constellation at the time of your birth. And so as an astronomer, but... I can calculate this. Well, I don't need to. Anybody can actually calculate this if they download a simple program called Stellarium. Mm-hmm. And they download this on the computer and they type in your birth date. You can actually see where the position of the sun and which constellation it's in. Oh. And it turns out some 30 plus years ago, <laughs> the sun was actually in the constellation of Sagittarius. Oh. Right? So it's like, ah. But why Why would that be the case? I mean, surely there must have been a reason for this. Mm-hmm. And so if you look into it more, i ask you the question, when do you think the constellations were first invented or imagined?
0: A long time ago. Yeah, so I guess 2,000 years ago, yeah. right?
1: Ancient Greek. So most of the constellations we uh, name are part of the ancient Greek mythology. Mm-hmm. And so it would stem the reason that... The, cons- the sun was actually in these constellations at the time were birth to define your star sign mm. and the reason why it's probably changed is because the earth processes over yeah. time so there's quite a few effects there's like the sun actually moves through the galaxy but that be a very minor effect on uh on the course of 2000 years mm. be, but be more likely that the earth the earth is spinning it's at a particular axis but it actually wobbles like a spinning top. Yeah. And this one revolution of a wobble was about 20 to 25,000 years. So 2,000 to 3,000 years is quite a significant fraction of that wobble. Yeah. And so even if the Earth slightly tilts, then the relative position of the sun to the background stars will actually slowly change over time. In, such, in my case, it slowly changed from Capricorn over to Sagittarius at the time of our birth every year. So if you actually mapped out the points of the sun every year at the time of your birth
0: you can actually notice it slightly changing over time so i think you've demonstrated a really good communication technique there and that you're not just you know talking astronomy and going "Oh, that astrology nonsense is bollocks i'm not even going to acknowledge it you've just engaged with it and have just brought in the rich history of astronomy and mythology and and it's a you're doing a good job. Oh, right. Thank you. Well, that's part of
1: what I like to be is part of, part of my passionate about uh, passion about being a communicator in science is cherishing our historic beliefs but mm-hmm. looking forward to the future. I shouldn't. I, I don't like saying dismissing uh, dismissing our history and culture because mm-hmm. that's what we believed in back then. Yeah. Right. And so if we understand from our past, we can then forge ahead to the future. And so we. I like. Debunking myths, yeah. Um, but at the same time, I don't want to piss anybody off because <laughs> there are certain sensitive subjects out there that you may not want to approach or talk about. But mm. astrology is actually quite easy to do in Australia because, as I said before, it's a very minority group. But other countries like India, Nepal, they've got a bit bigger issue because most of their belief systems they, uh, the astrology part of their belief system actually influences government I've mm-hmm. uh, my counterpart in Nepal an astronomy outreach person there he, he's very passionate about astronomy outreach yeah. and he invited uh, the leader of their country to see a total lunar eclipse but his astrology advisor advised him not to go because it's if you attend this event it's going to be bad luck for oh. you so that's to me is damaging right yeah, yeah even though we know it's harmless the moon is just well the earth's shadow is just passing in front of the moon and it's mm-hmm. not doing anything right but an astrologer might interpret as oh that's a bad omen there mm-hmm. and that's sort of yeah it's what i would say definitely harmful that kind of information it influences your decision just to see a pretty phenomenal event yeah but it's totally harmless because you can be on earth and you can see it and Nothing happened, but it's actually quite incredible. It actually shows that we're in a solar system hmm. and that the Earth is indeed not the center of our solar system. It is actually part of a network of other planets and then hmm. the solar system is part of the galaxy. It's a great talking point, but to not actually see that because an astrologer advised you not to, that's, yeah. that's, yeah, it's, Something's not right there. And so when we have these international meetings on outreach, these are the biggest concerns for these countries.
0: So you've been working in outreach as part of uh, UNSW uh, for a while now, but you recently decided to make the step back into research. And you're in a PhD at the University of Queensland, is it? Uh, University of Southern Queensland. Southern Queensland. Uh, So my uh, principal supervisor's there,
1: as well as my sort of academic supervisor for the research project. Mm -hmm. Also got another supervisor at University of New South Wales as well. So it's kind of a joint project, but principally I'm a student of University of Southern Queensland. What made you decide to take the step? Mainly because of the supervisor there. Yeah. Uh, I should say he's now Associate Professor uh, John T. Mar- uh, Horner mm-hmm. John T. Marshall is the other supervisor so I've got two John T's as supervisors fantastic <laughs> and basically I like his approach to research and communication himself because he hey, hey. finds himself uh, uh, loving talking to the public about sharing the knowledge mm. and so and his topic area is actually very similar to what I did with my honours research here at Macquarie University in fact okay. and so it's sort of full circle so to speak in that so hopefully I can complete the circle and finish a PhD uh, because my first attempt didn't go so well but um but i got a master's out of that that was pretty cool oh, okay
0: but so yeah it was your just a new project what are you going to be looking at
1: uh so generally speaking the area is planetary sciences mm-hmm. uh, but specifically debris disk or the evolution of debris disk okay. so essentially what planet, is a debris disk yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i was afraid you're gonna ask that no well it's essentially uh where we believe that planets actually form from a disk full of dust essentially oh, right. um so that's put it very simply so Probably the best way to actually understand a debris disk is actually go understand the star and planet formation process. Do mm-hmm. uh, we have time to do that? Hit me with it. All back. right, we'll see how my communication skills go <laughs> yeah. here. So essentially you've got a big gas cloud yeah. uh, mixed in with dust and it s- starts to slowly rotate. Mm-hmm. And under the influence of gravity, material starts to sink towards the center yeah. of this thing. So in the center you get what's what we regard as a protostar and then eventually forms the sun. Mm -hmm. But due to the slow rotation initially and as objects start falling into the center, Mm -hmm. the objects start speeding up much faster because of the conservation of angular momentum. So angular momentum might sound like a technical thing here, but it's more physics. Yeah. Uh, But the idea is that Everyone probably has experienced this conservation of angular momentum at one stage. So, for example, an ice skater, when they do their pirouettes, Mm -hmm. you notice when they bring their arms closer together... Mm-hmm. they, what do they do, James? Spin faster. They spin faster, exactly. Yes. <laughs> and so you can do this experiment yourself if you have a swivel chair and probably a couple of masses and you you spin yourself around, arms out, and then bring your arms closer together, you actually do get faster. Mm-hmm. And so that's essentially what happens in this original formation of the star and the disc. So as objects start falling in, the disc suddenly speeds up and so there's more collisions and everything like that within the disc that's surrounding the newly forming star. So the disk that's formed is basically gas mixed in with dust. Mm -hmm. And this initial uh, thing is actually called a protoplanetary disk. Okay. Uh, So it's so protoplanetary, meaning sort of the birthplace of planets, essentially, eventually down Mm -hmm. the track. Uh, And so where was I going with this? I was going to mention that was my honours research. I Mm -hmm. actually looked at sort of just individual dust grains in a protoplanetary disk to see where they settle. And so eventually in the, di- the protoplanetary disk, they need to settle somewhere and a com- uh, sort of connect together collisions occur and they form the planets eventually. Yeah. The difference between a protoplanetary disk and a debris disk, to my understanding, is that eventually over time, when the star is fully formed, it creates this big giant wind and blows out all the gas in mm-hmm. the, d- the disk, leaving dusty remnants, yeah. which is believed to be the debris disk. But the debris disc is also could be created due to um, collisions between asteroids and comets and planetoids, and you get this process where you've got big objects and they're still crashing into each other, creating a lot of debris in the process. So it's not a straightforward a sequential process. You get the protoplanetary disk settling your dust grains, and then things collect together, form planets. Mm-hmm. It's actually probably a more ongoing cycle that goes on. You got collisions, debris collisions again and eventually some objects tend to stick together and you eventually get a debris disk of some sort
0: so when i want to study things i put on my hat and sunscreen and i go out and i poke them and i observe them in real time how on earth do you study these processes ah well (laughs) twofold actually
1: so first of all the best way uh Funny enough, it's not on Earth. You've got to get a space telescope to mm-hmm. actually see these debris disks in better detail. I mean, you can see it from Earth, and there's a uh, telescope called ALMA mm-hmm. in the Atacama Desert. And that's cho- that location is chosen because the atmosphere is very thin, it's very cold, because infrared ra- radiation is where these debris disks actually glow, is, mm-hmm. in a sense. The reason for that, because debris disks are very faint in compared to the actual host star. Mm -hmm. So if you try and look in the optical or the visible spectrum, the star basically washes out any debris Mm -hmm. component, unless the system is very close and you can probably see some of the dusty component. It's only when we shift into the infrared regime, Mm -hmm. so shorter wavelengths, no. Longer wavelengths, <laughs> Yeah, that makes uh, sense. Yeah, yeah. So into longer wavelengths, you actually start getting into the area where the dust gets, you actually start seeing the dust. Yeah. And so you need the appropriate telescope to see that. And since the atmosphere absorbs a lot of infrared radiation, the best place to see it is where the atmosphere is thin, such mm. as the Atacama Desert or possibly even the Antarctic Plateau. Yeah. Uh, but ultimately, is the uh, a telescope in space would be the best way to do it. And for my recent project that we're about to uh, we, uh, submit a paper for, we used data on a single object mm-hmm. uh, located in the Southern Cross constellation called right. Ida Crucis, or Ida Crew, depending on how you want to pronounce it. Mm-hmm. And, and we use a telescope called the Herschel Space Observatory. And it's got a particular instrument that looks at specific wavelengths in the far infrared. So these three particular wavelengths, that actually can sort of structure out the disk, or we actually can observe the disk in mm-hmm. resolved imaging as well as just getting an individual brightness measurement at these wavelengths. Okay. And so that's you do some observa- observational analysis to that to get some idea what the the dust is doing.
0: So you're just taking snapshots of these formations at a particular Wait point away. in time uh you well it's only one point in time right now yeah. or you know whatever well, we're when, observing back the Herschel Space Observatory has now
1: been decommissioned so it was back about four years ago or five years ago oh, okay. when these images were taken yeah so we no longer have access to this telescope unfortunately
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, but the idea is that it's still we still can access the data on online databases mm-hmm. so we just picked this object and we decided to go with it and just see if there's, and it turns out this particular object has a debris disk around it.
0: So I get the impression that maybe astronomy is a really almost infinite field with all the data recording that's going on. There's got to be a, just a limitation it's, of how many people there are looking at the data. Yeah. So it's very, as you say, it's very broad
1: in the yeah. sense of what how you can analyze these things. I mean, I've been only talking about it from an observational point of view. Mm-hmm. Part of my research will also look at it from a theoretical point of view. or so actually you to simulate? S- these simulate simulate right. these disks, hopefully. Because uh, my overall project, if it doesn't change, as you well know, you may experience that your PhD may change over time. Yep. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but the idea is see if... Uh, if uh, stellar wind forces from the host star actually influence the evolution of debris disks. So mm. they'll be uh, people have done a little bit of research in this area. So I basically want to make it my own, perhaps, and just looking at various stars that are very highly magnetic and see if there's actually a correlation between. The magnetic aspect of the sun and if it actually has any influence on the debris disk it's going to be a very hard uh question to answer yeah and so then might there might be some moving around in the research to try and figure it all out but essentially at the end of the day i would like to go into the evolution of debris disk Mm -hmm. because that's um process is somewhat understood people got a um a pin down of sort of collisional grinding and sort of typical stirring of the dust in the disk mm. and stuff like that. And I'm still learning all this. So I'll probably, my, if my supervisors are listening, going, oh, crap, Shane said something completely wrong. <laughs> uh, but it's still, it's, it's a new area because whilst in astronomy is very exciting times now, we're getting these big telescopes looking mm. out to look answer the uh, questions of the universe, how the universe was sort of maintained all the time. There's this sort of cosmic dark ages. Uh, that you need these big telescopes to look at this is the square kilometre array Uh, and so we're only now until getting the technology that we can actually do this Mm -hmm. but then on the flip side we don't know much more about planet formation, how does planets actually get created, until we got these recent observations from Kepler we thought it was this one way uh, but then we've actually changing our minds. It's not as simple as we originally thought because we're seeing different planetary systems out there mm. that are completely different to our own solar system. Each solar, each system or solar system out there is actually unique. Mm. You got sort of these big gas Jupiters mm. very close to the host star. And when they first observed that, they go, "How how the hell did that happen?" Mm. So they came up with models saying, "Well, there must be some sort of migration of these." Jupiter to these gas giants, because as far as we know, gas giants can only form so far away from their host star and the mass have eventually uh, migrated inwards. And we're talking about orbital periods on several days. Oh. Okay. Imagine the size of Jupiter going yeah. around their own sun. <laughs> their year is about a few days. <laughs> and that's just how we can detect them quite easily because they just sort of wink at you as they pass in front of their host yeah. star. That's a very simple technique. Um, and that's how we've discovered most of the planets that we see the kepler space telescope for example we see mm-hmm. that it's called the transiting effect so when a planet goes in front of their star it actually slightly diminishes the the light coming from the yeah. star. so you see a dip in the light curve mm-hmm. the light curve is sort of the the brightness of the star as a function of time yeah and if you see these dips or periodic dips you know there's a an object going, going around in right the sun in yeah.
0: yeah so i have to ask have you or have you not ever wanted to be an astronaut? Oh, <laughs> of course. <laughs> uh, definitely, because uh, when growing up, I read about the Apollo
1: missions and the moon landing. Yeah. Uh, of course, I didn't witness that because I was obviously wasn't born yet because mm-hmm. that classic year, 1969, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin. And I, I was fascinated with that. And so certainly... Yeah. while looking at planetary science and sort of space missions of going, yeah, that's the way I would want to do it. So I looked up, how do you apply to become a an national, And at that time, well, I think at that time you still had to be an American, but they mm. now since opened up to the rest of the world because oh, okay. of this international um, cooperation for space, because now the Americans are collaborating with the Russians, which would have been unheard of in the 60s, <laughs> as yeah. you know, with the Cold War and everything like that. Uh, and so... I figured, okay, so what are, what are the ways of becoming an astronaut? So one way is to become a fighter pilot All right. and, and rack up about 1,000 hours flight experience and you've mm. got to be fairly good at what you do. I mean, if you read Chris Hatfield's book, um, the classic guy um, saying David Bowie mm-hmm. in, on the ISS, and he goes through that process and he did that process so right. in that way. The other side of things is become a scientist or basically an engineer Mm -hmm. on the space flights and so and I go well that's probably more me I'm more academic minded rather than flying a fighter Mm -hmm. fighter plane even though that would be pretty cool to do (laughs) I just never took the military path in that sense Uh, because that would have been really cool because they actually ground you quite well in their degree program but you actually get to do other stuff as well so it's but it's very challenging, and I don't think I had the uh, patience
0: or something like to be a be part of the army or the uh, or the air force, so to speak. But I mean, astronauts are pretty superhuman in terms of their sheer intellectual capacity and yep. ability to think on their feet. And well, yeah, they've got to go through all these uh,
1: safety checks and say, mm.
0: "Okay."
1: <laughs> I like in Chris Hadfield's book, it's like, "Okay, how do we not die in this scenario?" Pretty yeah. much. <laughs> <laughs> that takes some guts. It's like every decision could potentially cause, um, mm. you can lose your life in yeah. a sense. And so, how do you react in those situations? You've got to be basically react in microseconds and mm. do that. And so the more and more I think about it, and maybe that's not for me. Uh, <laughs> cause, I mean, I'm a pretty intense sort of person. Yeah, it's kind of like being a surgeon, I would imagine, like mm. making those decisions while operating on someone. And it's the responsibility I don't like having. This, yeah. <laughs> uh, and so I have greatest respect for people like that mm. who can do all that because you have either your, uh, in the case of the surgeon, you've got somebody else's life. Is your responsibility. And as an astronaut, I imagine you got not only your own life, but everybody's lives around you. And mm. if you make a stupid decision, that could cost everybody's lives. And so when sort of thinking about that, that's, sort of, <laughs> yeah, maybe that's not for me. <laughs> I leave that with the people who have actually got the mentality for it. I mean, if push came to shove, if that was in my situation, I'll probably try and react as best as I could. Mm. But it's, it's a, it's a very high level. Um, of responsibility mm. you know, it's sort of something that's sort of that's why one of the reasons why I didn't want to become a doctor as well in mm. that sense namely because I didn't have the grades for it but <laughs> uh, I mean a doctor of medicine I should emphasize that yeah. I still want to become a doctor of science yeah. uh, but yeah, making that decision is like, uh, should I prescribe this type of drug or become the surgeon? And so, if I mm. <laughs> do all that stuff, I just don't, I guess I, I couldn't live with that responsibility. And so, therefore, I have very much respect for these kind of yeah. people. Yeah, so it's, but yeah, it's the answer to answer your question, I always want to become an astronaut. Mm. And I love to be in space one day. So, but once it becomes more commercial, perhaps, and yeah. more standard, and it's safer these astronauts risk and as you know we've had a few disasters mm. in the past and they're sort of things that really deter you from actually doing it uh, but i think it's still essential that we should do space travel and space exploration so elon
0: musk is listening <laughs> we're cutting on him to get us to space <laughs> yes i think he's got the probably the best technology so far
1: yeah uh, with his uh his with his program there landing on a like a moving barge in the middle in the of the ocean, ocean. yeah that's yeah, quite imp- quite <laughs> impressive uh so yeah i think he's got and there's various... i don't know what's happening with virgin galactic these mm-hmm. days the other side the other billionaire that's <laughs> <laughs> richard branson uh but he's making a little bit of progress i guess but uh i think he had a tragedy that sort of halted things mm-hmm. which was a bit unfortunate for him but mm-hmm. i think he's still going at it but i think they're being a bit more uh, risk-averse now yep. I'll, I'll probably think maybe in 30 years time we might be actually traveling to the moon and back potentially right yeah, potentially that might be a <laughs> bit <pretty> ambitious actually <laughs> we'll revisit that uh, but prediction. if we funny the thing is if we had the same motivation that we had in the 60s and 70s with the Apollo program mm-hmm. and well before that because this all started in the 50s with the mercury program uh, if we had the same motivation and the same will to actually travel the solar system we would be probably colonising Mars by the late 80s Mm. that was sort of a i guess and obviously we're in 2016 and we're actually sending probes to mars and landing rovers on mars mm. but we're not we haven't actually got to the point where we want to send humans but now it's become more of an ethical question are we if there is life on mars would we be contaminating that life by mm. us going there Should we, we'd be sending our germs and everything like that mm. we'd be committing genocide already but before we actually get there so yeah, one day I'll not mind being and standing on the surface of the moon. Pretty cool, looking back at Earth and say, "Yes, the Earth is round." <laughs> <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> don't want to go there. That—that's—that's. That's, uh, yeah, that's slowly uh, as that's a classic misconception. People, there's there's a small group out there about that don't think the Earth is round, um, and that's something I don't want to engage in conversation with because it's just pointless.
0: <laughs> yeah, I feel like they're just. Arguing for argument's sake, yeah. sometimes. But you, you're along with your research, you haven't stopped communicating. No. If anything, you've amped it up. You've started your own podcast yeah. with some collaborators. Oh, yes. Uh, yes,
1: Tom Gordon and Krista mm-hmm. Uh So we've got Stem Punk.
0: Uh, so Which is a great name. <laughs> Everybody else out there is kicking themselves that they didn't think of. That. <laughs> now that, that, that's Tom... Tom came up with that because he was (laughs) contemplating maybe we should
1: do STEAM Mm -hmm. and do Steampunk, but that's already been kind of taken. And because the A stands for arts, if Mm -hmm. you do that in the STEM, science, technology, engineering, mathematics. And we did have an episode talking about whether we should include A in the STEM. Mm -hmm. And I think the conclusion was that it depends on the situation. Yeah. Because we... I think Christy and I was, uh, that was an interesting episode where Christy and I were initially mm, probably not, but then Tom presented some interesting arguments saying, well, it might be potential. But Tom wasn't, it was funny in that episode because Tom wasn't for a in the, in the steam initially. <laughs> it was like, oh, I managed to convince you and I wasn't really convinced myself. Uh, but yeah, STEM punk is um, pretty cool. Mm-hmm. We're uh, just starting out with doing all these episodes, mainly tom 's done a lot of our episodes interviewing guest scientists and the like, and sometimes we 've had some it,
0: pretty big guests from just starting off you 've had Brian Schmidt in your last one, you had Dr. Carlon. you 've had all sorts of yeah you're doing I, public events yes you've yes lots of goals <laughs> well we 're getting we 're getting the guests, but the
1: um, well it's kinda, it 's kind it kind of helps when you 're in this communication field that you have these connections i yeah. mean Tom basically is in the same building as Dr. Carl's. So that was pretty easy. And Tom was also a student of Brian Schmidt in his uh, <laughs> okay. undergraduate class. So that was fairly easy. But that was very lucky to get him uh, now because he's so busy being sort of the uh, vice chancellor of ANU, mm-hmm. uh, he's obviously a Nobel a, a laureate, and he still maintains a vineyard as well. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, but it's very lucky to actually have about 45 minutes of his time just sitting yeah, yeah. over Skype.
0: Uh, chatting to him yeah. and, uh, so. so the podcast is just talking about philosophy of science in general and talking to scientists what's the, what do you do on this podcast
1: well the idea is that we want to raise the awareness of STEM mm-hmm. because it's a buzzword whether you like it or not it's there because <laughs> um, some people like oh STEM is just another word like coding or something like, <laughs> mm-hmm. like that the politicians like to use and throw around but the idea behind STEM whether you're a scientist or not a scientist or an artist, uh, we can all adopt these sort of principles that are actually highlighted in STEM. Even mm. though we don't really talk about it as much, everyone uses these types of sort of skills in their career set. And so we want to just sort of raise that awareness that, yes, these are important to sort of at least be aware of Sort of the science and the technology and the engineering and maths and sort of the uh, the critical thinking that goes behind all that as mm-hmm. well. And so we talk about topics anything from marketing of STEM to STEM in popular culture such as television, film, stuff like that. So mm-hmm. so there's kind of two formats that we have. We have the three of us just chatting about stuff and it's very casual conversation. Like for example, the marketing. and mm-hmm. Uh, and various other things. And then we sit down with the scientists and talk about what they think is STEMI and raise the awareness of what they do. And Mm -hmm. if they want to plug something, we help plug them. So it's also a collaboration in terms of marketing in that sense Mm -hmm. about their own product. For example, here we're having a conversation on in situ. Mm -hmm. So we're going to be doing... I guess, a back-to-back episode.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Sister episodes. Yeah, yeah. Um, Which
1: is common practice, like even Mm. on YouTube, like the YouTubers out there, the science communicators there, they do back-to-back episodes to try and boost their... Listening ship, I guess, is one.
0: Listen. viewership,
1: because viewership? Listen, you're not viewing podcasts. you're listening. So I don't yeah, know. <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah, whoever listens in, and so we're still very much starting out. We will like to increase our numbers. Yeah, and so one initiative that Tom did. This is on top of all that is to host a STEM punk quiz night. Okay, and so we've done two of these so far. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just did one Tuesday of this week, uh, and the, the previous one was last month in June. Mm-hmm. And we're gearing up for the third one in National Science Week. Which is mid-August, National Science Week? Uh, yes. And among other stuff, it's like National <laughs> Science Month, really. Coming on pretty quickly. Like, yeah. <laughs> we'll everything like gets jam-packed in yeah. there. It's like, yes, it's great that we have this sort of awareness week. But we do this all year round. (laughs) It's like sometimes I just wish we can just spread it out across the year. But this is just on top of it. But this is when everybody's interested in it. And this is when they can sort of schedule for it. So we just work with the sort of what people want. But yeah, so the third one is uh, on Tuesday, 16th of August. Mm -hmm. And we're trying to get two guest scientists. We typically get two guest scientists on each of the... uh, teams and then we get a guest audience member as well and so it's just a basically quiz night like spicks and spas, specs or mm-hmm. rock quiz but with a little bit more stem <laughs> so it's on the 16th of august where is it happening oh waywood brewery okay in annandale and uh that's a fantastic pub there so they've got their own microbrewery there great hosts <laughs> Uh, so,
0: plug for the if, it, while we're
1: here. if we completely uh, stuff up on the night, there's great beer on tap. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we've been we've done two nights now. We've been quite I think we've been somewhat successful with mm-hmm. it. But it's been only mainly our friends who show up. <laughs> but hopefully, you get it's more. A start. Yeah. So, because one of the other things I like to do with all my communication is get the non fans of science in mm. to. Into science, really, because most of the stuff that we do, we're doing really a fan service to people who already are interested. Pitching to the choir. Exactly like that, yeah. And so it is very challenging to uh, sort of promote what you're doing, uh, especially if I want to sort of try and improve sort of the culture of science, Mm. of STEM, mainly science, because... Well, everything's of course it comes back to science anyway. Mm. And if you ask certain people, everything's physics anyway. You might not agree. <laughs> yeah, and then people say it's all mathematics. But <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, uh, so yeah. So, I guess with this, we want to actually try and encourage people that are not um, not. Well, I guess they're a little bit interested, but they don't think that it's um, that STEM or science is actually part of their everyday lives. So mm. it would be good if they can start listening in and just sort of be aware, oh, okay, yes, I do have these skills um, that I can think critically and stuff like that. Even mm. an artist thinks critically when it comes to their artwork and go, oh, what would work here? What would work there? And then they can actually do a little bit of research themselves. Yeah. And I think it's just... Having that awareness, they go, oh, okay, so maybe I can apply those skills to other areas mm. as well, so they can be a bit more versatile.
0: We're seeing more of these science themed evenings popping up in pubs, which I think is really good. Like, there's the nerd nights that are happening, mm. There, you've got your quiz nights I presented at the Pine of Science Festival ah, yes. a couple of months ago. That was brilliant. Yeah. It was just a really good environment and just a good night out. So, hopefully, we're going to see more of these things for for grown-ups to engage in science which is surprisingly (laughs) hard sometimes yeah grown up yeah so one of the things is he's got to try and get grown-ups
1: parents Mm. involved and so the parents can influence their kids Mm. as well so some people think oh you've got to try and like if you want to try and target people the common theme is that you target year 11 and year 12 students Mm. and for me that's not Probably the right way to go. It's good for the short term to try and get a instant feedback from what you do, but you've got to mm. really start young. Yeah. and So you get the primary school age students with their parents mm. and get the parents engaged as well to actually improve the actual culture of everything. Mm. like that. Because I think people are aware of science, but sometimes from the non-scientists, the non-fans of science, they think sciences can be viewed as a bad term. And so, I don't know if that's how you find, but
0: most of your friends are probably scientists or something like that. Or I would... I I mean, like, I've heard of people that... I've heard that these people exist that view the word science as a bad word, but I've never actually had to deal with anyone like that, Mm. which has been fortunate. (laughs) Because I don't think I'd know how to handle them. It's that point of where do we even start Mm. explaining what's wrong with that. Yeah. But even then, I mean, if you call yourself a scientist...
1: Because science is such a broad term. Even mm. science communication, if you're a science communicator, that's such a broad term. And what does that really mean? Mm. I mean, yes, you're communicating science, but uh, people say they're an expert in the field. But but like science, it's so broad as a topic. You're, you're a biologist by training, and I'm a, basically an astrophysicist or physicist by training. Mm. Two different areas of science. Yet we can call each other scientists. But... Sometimes that can be a bit misconstrued and think like in, in the media is oh, scientists came up with this and then suddenly mm. they changed their mind. It's like and everything everyone gets lumped in that category. Mm. And I guess in one of my, my one of my goals is or one of the things I like to see is rather than everybody get lumped as a scientist, everybody gets labelled particularly to their field. As like so an astrophysicist said this mm-hmm. or a biologist said this. Or an artist said this, or whatever. So get the terms more specific, right? And do away with the term science eventually, maybe. Mm. We just saw it, call it the scientific method that we follow, but science in itself. Yeah. Maybe not the right word. Anyway.
0: <laughs> I'm You're rambling, right. sorry <laughs> all right. So you've got this event on the 16th of the Wayward Yes, si- Tuesday, 16th of August at the Wayward the tickets Brewery? online? Or you just turn yes, up, um, so there's
1: an Eventbrite mm-hmm. uh, You should get the um, the link to it But if you just um, Google Stempunk Podcasting mm-hmm. You get to the blog site And on there there should be a subsequent link to uh, the Eventbrite And it's free So let so oh, you know great. for this event Yep uh, and so, are you
0: guys on Twitter or do you have a website all set up? Or? Uh, we're
1: on Facebook. Yep. So, again, it's uh, Stempunk and probably with the handle Stempunk Podcasting. Mm-hmm. And if people want to find out more about you and your research and what you're up to. Uh, so, yeah, so just Google Shane Hanks. As far as I'm, con- uh, I'm aware. The only Shane I'm Hanks. I mean, the type. only Shane Hanks in the world. All oh, right. That's yeah. handy. <laughs> they, there's probably initial S Hanks. Um, but Shane Hanks, as far as I'm
0: aware, I'm unique. It's great. Yeah. Good on you. <laughs> probably not. <laughs> <laughs> well, we should probably wrap things up. Cool. Thanks so much for coming, Shane. That was great. Absolute pleasure, James. Alright, if you Thanks. want to hear more behind the scenes stories of how scientific discoveries are made you can follow us on twitter with the handle at in situ science or check us out at instituscience.com i mean james O'Hanlon, thank you very much for joining us and we'll see you next time on the podcast